your Bibles. And I'd like to begin this morning by asking the question, do you believe that the moral choices you make in this life will directly correspond to your standing in the next life? Do you see that connection? Do you believe there is a direct connection between how you live today and how you will fare in the life to come? Now we all know that there's a pervasive belief in our culture that says such thinking is so much silliness. How you live today has something to do with your life in the future. That's just utter folly. But I'll tell you, on that point, Christians share common ground with a vast majority of Earth's inhabitants. There's a small minority of elitist secularists who will say there's no connection between this life and the next. But Christians share common ground with the major religions of the earth who see a direct relationship between how one lives and how one will fare in the next life. Just ask yourself the question, what comes to mind as you think of Eastern religions in general? Just putting them all into one basket, and that's a lot of people that hold those views. What do you think of? The connection between this life and the next. Coming to mind probably fairly quickly is the idea of reincarnation. How you live in this life determines the status you will enjoy in your reincarnate state. A connection between now and the next life. Islam. Islam teaches that Muslim men who prove faithful in this life to Allah will be waited on by beautiful female virgins in paradise. A direct connection between this life and the next life. No matter how twisted or diverse the packaging, the vast majority of people throughout history have perceived a direct connection between how they live and how they will fare in the next life. Jesus repeatedly emphasized this connection in his teaching ministry. And I'd like to take a little journey backwards in time as we've come to the 16th chapter in our study through Luke. And I want to I land here on this thought for a moment and to look at these passages from a little different angle than we perhaps did as we went through them in previous days. I'd like us to look at these passages and to consider the connection between this life and the next life. Let's start with chapter 10 and verse 13. Luke chapter 10 and verse 13. Jesus says here, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. Connection between this life and the next. Chapter 11, verse 29. Chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. 
The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. A connection between the present and eternity. Chapter 12, verses 4 and 5. Chapter 12, verse 4. Jesus again teaching says, 12.4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after the killing of the body has power to throw into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. As you live now, fear the one you will face in eternity. There is a connection between this life and the next. Chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 24. 13. 24, Jesus again teaching, says, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the door gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I do not know you or where you come from. Now watch where they go. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and taught, and you taught in our streets. Going back to the previous life. Verse 27, but he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evil doers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, people will come from the east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last, when? Last now, who will be first, and first now, who will be last then. Chapter 14, verse 12. 14, 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends or brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, so you will be repaid. When? Now, in this life. Verse 13. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you in this life, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Chapter 16 and verse 9. And I encourage you to plant this verse firmly in your mind. As we continue this string, it has much to teach concerning the passage we will look at this morning. 16.9 I tell you, 
Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Use financial resources now so that you will be received in heaven. Jesus teaches much about the connection between this life and the next life. There is a direct relationship. And he drives this point home very firmly with a graphic parable as we come to chapter 16 and verse 19 in our journey through this book. Taken in context, that is looking at chapter 16 verse 1 all the way through verse 15 in particular, that whole section there, taken in context, this parable makes the particular connection between material wealth in this world and eternal reward. 16.1, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. Remember that parable. At verse 9, the key point is invest material resources so that there will be eternal payback in the right sense of the word. And then we come down to 16, 14, and 15. You remember this, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. The value of your life is not determined by how successful or even righteous you are in the eyes of others. Nor is the worth of your moral integrity ultimately based on self-assessment. In the final analysis, it is God who stands as our judge and God who will see to it that our reward in eternity matches our faithfulness in time. So as Jesus hammers this point home to his listeners, he warns in this parable not to assume that things in eternity will look exactly like things in this life. Verse 16, or chapter 16 and verse 15, God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's eyes. With that established, and that context laying there before us, the connection between the two worlds, particularly the use of wealth and eternal reward, Jesus tells this parable in verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Headlining on lifestyles of the rich and famous, the cream of Israeli society is daily poured into this man's cup. Categories. Food, shelter, clothing. It was all at the top. He luxuriated in the essentials of life. In stark contrast, verse 20, at his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, 
covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. It's a horrible picture. Now, it's commonly noted that Jesus never uses names in parables and that this then is a historical report of an actual circumstance and the naming of Lazarus would indicate that. Without going into long detail, and there is much ink spilled on the point, but I think it's stronger, a stronger position to say that this is a parable, but that Jesus names this man for a very specific reason. In Israeli culture, seeing a man in such a condition would say to everyone, cursed, outside the will of God, not under covenant blessing, Old Testament context. So Jesus uses the word Lazarus, which mean, means God helps, perhaps purposefully. Now it really doesn't matter in the end if it is a parable or if in fact this actually took place. The teaching is the same. But God helps this man. Look at his condition. He's begging. He's covered with sores. Shelter. The Greek text is very instructive here. It says that he was roughly dumped at the gate. As if some people got him and took him and lifted him up because he was too sick or, too, or was crippled, and they just threw him down at that gate and left him there. Perhaps the rich man would feed him. Food, his stomach aches with hunger. He longs to be felt filled with those scraps that the servants would scrape up off the floor of the rich man's table and dump outside the gate where the dogs would eat it up, the ancient garbage collectors. Just dump it outside the gate and the dogs take off with it. And here's this man fighting perhaps with the dogs for those scraps. Too weak, too sick to do much eating. His clothing soars. No purple and fine linen here. His misery compounded by wild dogs who lick away the oozing pus from the weeping sores that cover his flesh. I don't know how words could really put a person in much more of a miserable situation. Completely dependent on others. Longing to eat what you put in your dustpan. His company, wild animals. One man wallowing in unimaginable, unimaginable misery at the gate of another man wallowing in fairy tale luxury. Now, in the context of the day, we fill in a few blanks that are very different from our own. This man is not lazy and unwilling to work. He's not simply incapable of handling money. This is a man in a day where there is no social security system outside of the grace and the favor of people with more than they need. And so laying there at his gate, he is in fact by Israeli law at the mercy of this wealthy man. But for the rich man, as one commentator put it so well, Lazarus was simply part of the landscape. There's no sense of compassion. There's no sense of connectedness. There is only a connection 
in where they live. Lazarus knows, is known by this rich man, but there's no compassion. Remember this scene in connection now again with 16.9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That is a message Jesus has been sending to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders, proud, unbending, unrepentant. And he draws that point home here with this parable of great luxury matched by great misery. Verse 23, verse 22 rather, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, his body probably not buried but burned on a garbage dump. The angels, however, attend to him, we notice. The care that he did not receive in this life, he receives by the angels of God who escort him into the realm of the redeemed. They escort him, as it says here, to Abraham's side. I don't take that to be a place where you walk through a door and at the top it says, Welcome to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. It's not so much a place as it is an idea, a metaphor of fellowship and oneness. We've talked about this before as we talk through Jesus' teachings about uh, dining and food uh, laws. You remember this in previous chapters. How did they eat? They would recline on their left elbow with their head in their hand, and so one head would be in the bosom of another. And there was a place of honor that would, as you would be seated by someone in that close proximity. What we have here is an indication that Lazarus is in the company of Abraham. He is relating to him and fellowshipping with him at table in eternity. We notice in the second part of verse 22 that the rich man also died and he was buried. Perhaps a very elaborate funeral. The poet John Donne calls death the great leveler. Both men were brought into this world naked and both men left this world empty-handed. They did not, however, cease to exist. The soul is eternal. It lasts forever. And here is Lazarus now at Abraham's side, dining in celestial luxury and intimate fellowship with the Father of Israel. Where is the rich man, verse 23, in hell? Where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus by his side. Let's draw the picture out just a little bit more here. In hell, should literally read Hades. It just means the realm of the dead. In the realm of the dead, hell is not here. The lake of fire mentioned in Revelation 20. Hades is not a place of permanent judgment. It appears to be a temporary place where there is a temporary body of sorts that is supplied so that spirits recognize one another. This will be cast ultimately into the lake of fire. But Hades is used in the New Testament only in reference to those who suffer retribution, who are separated from God. And in this place of separation, the rich man sees none other than Lazarus. And hope wells up within his heart as he recognizes this man. Verse 24, 
So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Father Abraham, he identifies with the people of God. Now, let me stop to say this parable I don't think is told in order to satisfy every curiosity that we have about the life beyond. This passage is often preached to describe what hell is like or what Hades is like, and I think that's fair to do, but let's remember in context there's more going on than simply saying, I want to tell you about the life after. There's a connection made between how we live in this life and the life that we experience in eternity. But what we can determine here, I think fairly, is that this parable indicates several realities about judgment the judgment of those that are separated from God. First of all, there is self-consciousness. He knows who he is. There is secondly, a full awareness of the previous life on earth. He recognizes Lazarus. There is suffering and torment in this place. And there is a permanent separation from God. I am suffering in this fire. In the Old Testament, fire was used of the quenching the satisfying of one's desire for God. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. There was a fire that was burning that licked up all satisfaction. And Jesus said, come and drink of me and you'll never thirst again. The Old Testament uses the condition of thirst as an image of divine judgment in fire. The point is that the rich man is separated from the satisfaction of God. There is extreme suffering here in his condition of separation from God. And he asks for a literal drop of water to be given to him to satisfy his thirst. Imagine being so thirsty that you think someone's finger dipped in water and brought over to you would actually satisfy His poverty is more extreme than anything that Lazarus experienced. Lazarus in this life longed to be filled with the scraps from his table. He now longs to be satisfied for just one moment with a touch of water off of Lazarus' finger. Perhaps this is indication that he admits this is all he deserves because of his treatment of Lazarus. But you'll notice here also, there's no call for deliverance. Get me out of this fire. That's not what he says. He seems to know that his situation is unchangeable. And Abraham confirms this in his reply in verse 25. But Abraham replied, son, literally child, which is an interesting use of word when he says, my father, Abraham, child, remember that in your lifetime. Now, think about this. Think of what Abraham says to him. Son, remember, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Abraham emphasizes this great reversal of status that has taken place. The first has become last, 
and the last has become first. And there was nothing anyone could do about changing things. No, child, you cannot come over here, and Lazarus cannot cross over to you. You had your opportunity in life, you enjoyed your wealth, but you are now separated from God, and there is nothing more that can be done. The man is not judged because he was rich. Lazarus is in the company of a man who is very rich, Abraham. It's not wealth that puts the rich man here. His judgment is based upon how he enjoyed his wealth. In your lifetime, you received your good things. You see, in his lifetime, Lazarus had not received his good things, but he is receiving them now. You received your good things in this life, and what you did was simply keep them to yourself. The idea is that the use of his wealth flowed from a heart that did not find its joy in God, but found its joy in things. One commentator says, The rich man is not condemned because he is rich, but because he slipped into the coma of callousness that wealth often produces. He became consumed with his own leisure and his own celebration. The coma of callousness is a coma that says, if I have this, I do not need God. If I have this joy, I need no Lord but my money. You lived your life, says Abraham, and you showed where you were at. You showed the love of your heart, and now you're left to it forever. It's a hard word, but the rich man's not done. He takes the word of Abraham. He realizes there's nothing that can be done to argue that point, but he answers verse 27, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. We assume these five to be as wealthy as he was and to be living the way that he lived. Send Lazarus to them. If he can't come to me, at least warn my brothers of this place. Is it not interesting that this man is not saying, I hope my brothers get here soon. I need some company here. He realizes this is no place to relate to anyone. The misery and the pain of this place makes it impossible to even think in terms of having camaraderie and friendship here. Send somebody to warn them so that they do not end up here. He realizes, does he not, that where one spends eternity is determined in this life. You see the connection. How they are living now, they need to be awake to what is coming. Send Lazarus to them. He sounds quite compassionate, this brother, in eternity. 
But notice what takes place at verse 29. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What's Moses and the prophets? There's the Old Testament scriptures. We noted that in chapter 16 and verse 16. The Old Testament scriptures, they can read Moses and they can read the prophets. And what do the prophets and Moses say? They say that God is to be loved with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself. God's word has spoken to them through the scriptures. They have those scriptures. That's all they need, says Moses. This man assumes his brothers will heed the message of a ghost. Abraham says, no, they have the word of God. That's what they need. What will it take to get them to repent? Oh, says the brother, it's not obedience to the word. They need to be hit with the shock and awe of a supernatural visitation. Then they will repent. What is he saying? Do you hear the logic behind it? As he says in verse 30, No, Father Abraham, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. They need something greater than Scripture. What they need is information. What they need is a visitation. But here in the heat of the exchange, the man reveals his true heart. And if I could fill in the blanks appropriately, I think he is saying, I had the Word of God, and look where that got me. I had the law and the prophets. I had Moses and the prophets. I had the word of truth. And look where I am. That wasn't enough. And Abraham answers back and says, if what is in your heart, if it is in your heart to rebel against God, it will be in your heart no matter what you see in the phenomenal world. Repent. Heed the scriptures. That is the answer. This man remains unrepentant. No, Father Abraham. No, not the Scriptures alone. He's unrepentant. Even in hell, he refuses to believe God's Word and to repent of his sin. His rebellion on earth carries into eternity. He is reasoning like a lost man because he still is a lost man. There's no conversion in eternity. He lives in rebellion against God. Someone once said that hell is truth seen too late. On the face of it, that sounds quite interesting. Hell is truth seen too late. But that phrase itself is a rebellion. Hell is not truth seen too late. Hell is the downward spiraling condition of a heart that has rejected the truth all along. No, Father Abraham, they need something more. He is still in his rebellion, and that is the horror of hell. To live all of eternity in rejection and opposition of the one who is the source of your joy. The ultimate torment and horror of hell is to be separated from God, from whom all goodness comes. Locked into this eternal rebellion, the man sees nothing but excuses for himself.
Abraham replies in verse 31, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. (coughs) Repentance is what is needed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now get this, says Abraham. All sinners must do to avoid eternal separation from God is to heed His word, to repent, to turn to God in humble submission. All that is needed is God's word. That brings the light. That brings the hope. One's response to the word is the sufficient test of one's heart attitude. And there's proof of this throughout the gospel accounts, is there not? What did the leaders of Israel do when Jesus raised Lazarus, a different Lazarus, from the dead? The wealthy Lazarus raised from the dead. What did the religious leaders do with this man who had been dead for three days and was now walking among them? They sought to kill him. You can't send any greater evidence of the glory of Christ than this, and they want to squash it which is perhaps one reason that Jesus never appeared in resurrection form to any of his haters. Because when you are in rejection against the word of God, you are in rejection against that which is necessary for your salvation. So the great need is not a more phenomenal display of supernatural power. What is needed is a changed heart. And the hammer that shatters the sin-hardened heart is God's Word. There's been a movement among us in recent days rising up within my lifetime, starting just a, a hair before, but a very strong movement within our own land that says that Christ gave us to the church, gave powerful, miraculous signs And that if we are to evangelize effectively in this world, we need to use these miraculous signs to show to people that God is who God truly is. And there's different angles and different teachings, different ministries that take this thinking. Some tend to be fairly rational in orientation. Others are on the lunatic fringe, to put it mildly. But there's these... There's this miraculous display that will prove to people that God is real. Listen, let's never forget the hammer that shatters the hard heart is God's Word. They have the law and the prophets. And that is a hammer. I use a kind of negative figure here, I suppose, but maybe we need that negative figure when we think of the hard hearts of people bound in sin. We have that hammer in our hand. It's the word of truth. Now, we don't wield that hammer in a vicious way to smack people over the head with it, but we loose the power of God's word as we speak his word, and his word penetrates the heart and produces spiritual life in the soul. Have you not thought sometimes as you read through the book of Acts, if we could only do that, if we could go down to the hospital here in Burnsville and we could open the doors and clean it out, would not that convince people of the power of God? 
You know what it would do is would convince people that you had the power of God and they wanted a piece of it. The peace that led to their physical health. And once that peace was taken care of, no more need for God. Faith, writes the Apostle Paul, comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of God. We have the Word. This is the power. It's not our gimmicks, it's not the display, it's not the phenomenon that we can bring down upon an individual. It is the word of truth that crushes the hard heart and makes it soft and penetrable by the implanted word of truth that sprouts into faith and life and salvation. We have that word to conquer hearts. So Jesus teaches us again that there is a direct connection between how you live your life and how you will fare in the next life. There is a direct connection. And we are called as his people then to live this week by faith in God's word. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That is the law and the prophets in a nutshell. That is the law that Jesus came to fulfill. And that is the law through Jesus Christ which we reflect as we walk in the Spirit and fulfill the law of Christ. To love God and others. In 16.9, Jesus said, I tell you, use your worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. If we could expand on that point as it's so clearly reflected in the parable, we could say this, we need to give our money, we need to give our time, we need to give our talent to the advance of the cause of Jesus Christ. What did a beggar do who did nothing but lay down at a gate and beg? What did he do to advance the cause of God? You remember we have the ultimate judge. We have the judge who can discern hearts we have the judge who knows what is in us and who looks at whatever circumstances, how much money, how much talent, how much opportunity we have, and he weighs all of that on his perfect scales of justice. And it is that God who determines how we live for him. Don't get caught up with those who have more money to invest in the cause of Christ and think that somehow that limits you or those who have greater abilities that God gives through His gifting and somehow can serve God in a better way than you can serve Him. Don't get caught up with that kind of thinking. What we need to concentrate on is that we use what God has given us and we employ it to the glory of Christ. This Lazarus, this sick, weak, hurting, impoverished man 
sat in the presence of Abraham and fellowshiped with God, and I believe does to this very day. If you do not know Christ as your Savior, if you are not confident with biblical evidence, with the Bible supporting you, that you will stand before Him forgiven. Let me say, though this may be a parable, it's not a fiction. Jesus clearly taught often about the reality of hell and separation from Him. Do you want to be separated from God for eternity? If not, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You must come to this Jesus and receive from him the forgiveness of your sin. Because when it comes down to it, we don't know everything there is to know about heaven and hell. We don't know everything to know there is about the connection of this life and the eternal life. Some of those matters are mysterious to us, but when it comes down to it, there is this choice. It's a choice that is in your heart. To spend eternity with God or to spend eternity in rebellion against Him. If your sins have not been forgiven through the work of Jesus Christ, that is, if you have not come to place your faith and your confidence in that forgiveness, you are evidencing that there is a separation between you and God. Jesus will bridge that separation, but it has to happen. Now, it has to happen now, in this life, not the next. What opportunity is ours, who know Christ as Savior, to proclaim this saving truth to a lost world? We have the power in our hands. It is the word of truth. Let's release it. Let's let God use it in the lives of our neighbors and friends and schoolmates as we share this gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. Because what happens in this life directly affects what takes place in the next. You, Christian, we, Christians, are living for eternity. We are. How are you living? Let's bow for prayer. I wonder, Father, if the truth of what we've considered in the words of Jesus should crush us to the ground. Should we fully understand if we'd even be able to remain seated?
This is a weightiness that's too much for us to bear. And I suppose it would might be appropriate to thank you for the ignorance that you graciously supply us. To keep us in the dark to some degree about the realities of the future. To think very long about this man and his suffering is too much for us as your little children. But God, while we acknowledge that we cannot take it all in, may we not dismiss it. But realize that there is an eternity that awaits those who are separated from Christ. God, as I pray, I know I represent others in this auditorium whose hearts are crushed, as is mine. With our friends and our relatives, our neighbors and our workmates, people that we come in contact with every day who just will not yield. We hold out the word of life. We seek to be faithful in our witness, and people just don't respond. I pray, Lord, that you'll lift our hearts. You'll lift our hearts as a church and permit us to be seeing people coming to liberating life. And I pray that we would take to heart this responsibility to heed the word of God in this life, proclaiming it to others, but living it out ourselves. And Lord, may the people of Eden Baptist Church and your people throughout the world make the direct connection between this life and the next. You are our great judge who will meet us in eternity. May we be ready. There are any here who do not know you as personal Savior. I pray that this would be a day of dawning, that you would turn on the lights and help them to see and permit them to come. May they embrace the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Because time is short. And what we do in time matters for all eternity. Draw souls to yourself, we pray, in the name of our Savior. Amen.